0: Hello and welcome back. I am so pumped to take on this chapter. I actually just finished reading through chapter one myself and trying to focus down this talk to a few main points was challenging, but hey, let's go ahead and get going. In this chapter, the idea of wisdom in customary laws is discussed. And anytime someone delves into the law, we are immediately thrust into the realm of morality, whether we want to be there or not. So before we go too far, let's just define the term morality. So the word morality comes from the Latin word moralis. And it was the word used by Cicero, who was a Roman statesman, scholar, and even a philosopher. And that word translated closely to the Greek word of ethos. Both are important in understanding our current definition or, or our own understanding of the word. So the Latin word moralis refers more properly to the habits and customs of a people, while the Greek word ethos is related to the idea of character, especially an individual character. So morality, in our current understanding, refers to both your and my morality, and it's concerned with people's character and how we interact with each other in society. So remember this, morality concerns itself with your character and how you interact with people you come in contact with and society at large. See, there's an individual and a societal aspect when we consider the word morality uh, they're intertwined basically and almost inseparable. You can't, unless you want to be a hypocrite, call out the morality of some horrendous action by society if you at your own individual level in your life refuse to live by the same set of moral standards. There there has to be a give and take, an interplay back and forth between the individual's morality you have in your life and and how that impacts your community, your culture, and your country as well. But how and where did the idea of morality come from? And how in the world do we build a code of conduct that's fair, it's wise, and uh, leads to the greatest good for a group of people living together? This is no easy question to answer. We're fairly certain all the way back to the earliest tribes of hunters and gatherers that a moral code of existing together, it was in place. It seems human beings need this to thrive. It It's a, a level playing field. Knowing the rules of the game, they're important on the micro and the macro level. Yet, the stakes to the game rise higher and higher and it gets more challenging and more complicated the more and more people live in a certain geographic region or in a society. It's incredible that this idea of a strict binding documented moral code didn't really exist in, in small hunter gatherer societies. Instead, the catalyst for humanity beginning to document a code of ethics by a government emerges from the development of cities and permanent settlements, which began to produce crops and live in the same place, uh, specialization of job functions in cities. For the very first time, we see collections of large populations of people unfamiliar with each other, people that were not uh, immediate or extended family members, people that actually would move there uh, or, or immigrate from different regions or areas from different tribes and different cultures. And they're all thrust together into some urban realm In the city, like this, people are not bound by the ties and the obligations of family or familiar people, uh, nor is there the same internalization of the moral law that you can find in very small groups of people. This makes cities inherently more prone to crime or acting out in all sorts of unruly ways, and this necessitated the development of other ethical mechanisms beyond just familial ties that restrict personal conduct, not as necessary within the bonds of, say, a family or some tight, cohesive tribe, where the verbal passing down of religions and rules and roles, it was much more easily transmitted. So the concept of a citizen, which we know today very well, was a word that was not used in the age of Hammurabi or the peoples of the Torah. Uh, Later, these provide a convenient bonding unit of people similar to the elements of the tribal identity. You know, people take the United States, for example. We have people from almost every country in the world, and they come together, go through a process, become an American citizen. Uh, that, that becomes a strong bonding unit that, that wasn't even necessarily that term didn't exist so early on as where we're talking today. So in this lesson, we're going to study the development of what's known as customary laws. And you have read, I hope, some of the earliest documents of customary law in Chapter 1 with the Code of Hammurabi and the Torah. These date back roughly to 1755 B.C. and 5th century B.C. respectively. Inventions and innovations always change society and culture. And I would be really remiss to not at least in passing talk about how significant the invention of writing is to humanity and this idea of creating moral laws, because without writing articulating and enforcing a comprehensive system of laws in a, in an urban environment of peoples with very different backgrounds, uh, the idea of moral laws just would not work well. It wouldn't exist. So writing is significant. And it's probably not mere coincidence that the earliest ideas of moral laws become codified only after we have writing. But writing, I want to talk just briefly about writing in general. See, writing makes the abstract become concrete. The images, the ideas, the thoughts, the concepts of everything in your mind become concrete when we write them down. You know, just to go off on a tangent for a second, writing is so critically important. There there's literally no difference between writing and thinking. I I sometimes get so frustrated as nobody ever explains why writing is so important in university because writing makes you think It's hard to understand why our universities are so bad about explaining how significant learning to write is as you become absolutely unstoppable, deadly, if you will, as I'll tell my students, if you learn to formulate your arguments, lay out your positions, and then can communicate them effectively and efficiently. This is the major separation marker between us and every other animal on the planet Earth. It is so powerful. It's almost mystical how we came up with our own writing system. So uh, let me go back to the the formal articulation of these laws in writing. This, This was a turning point in human civilization. And without writing, I would be so bold as to say society would not have advanced anywhere near where we are today without it. So let's look at the actual foundational elements of early ethics and morality. It's very difficult to say exactly how notions of the gods developed in early societies alongside the morals and ethics of humans, and how long the verbal transmission of the gods went on prior to writing down full religious systems. You know, it's probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of years uh, that we, we lived in this world of, of verbal transmission of religious ideas. And, and I don't want to speculate on this. But what's for sure, the gods and religious systems was a significant component of early moral laws. In fact, religious systems are the bedrock foundation. Religion gave specific divine personalities legal and ethical jurisdictions which would then be transferred to rulers or figureheads of great power you know we're able to see this in the figures represented at the top of the stele containing the law of hammurabi uh, they they show a standing king receiving the law represented by a measuring rod and a tape from shamash the babylonian god of justice and and he's seated on the on a throne Morality, thus, was inexplicably tied or inextricably tied to universal truths connecting an all-powerful, all-knowing God to a set of moral laws and rules to live by on the human plane of existence. So our friend, King Hammurabi, who was our first, uh, the first reading that we did in this chapter, was the sixth Amorite king of Babylon, and he lived from 1792 all the way to 1750 B.C., more significantly than a, a long lifespan is he actually ruled for 42 years, which is an extremely long period uh, for a ruler of the day. Uh, assassinations, murders, uh, dying of, from disease, being killed in combat was real common. So the fact that he made it 42 years as a ruler is a pretty impressive Pretty impressive feat. So as king, he held the chief judicial office. And the decisions that were given on legal matters came down to people based on documented course decisions. I want to say documented course decisions. And that's where we're getting King Hammurabi's code, um, rather than just personal whims. We sort of take for granted in our modern age uh, this idea that you know, prior to documentation, many times the legal, the moral, the ethical rulings, even on matters of life or death are very serious charges were left at the feelings and biases, whims of an all-powerful king. And oh, how you hoped the day that you went in front of the king to bring your case forward that you caught him on a good day or he was uh, naturally inclined to like you, or else it could literally spell disaster for your life. So Hammurabi's code was important because it's it's carved onto slabs of black basalt. And, it, and these stones, these Hammurabi code, they were placed in the middle of city squares where everyone could see them. And it provided a public record of the case law. And ironically and, and amazingly, this satisfied the legal requirement of notice, which is which is still required by the law today, and it informed the people of the decisions of the court. It was the most impartial, the most objective form of law we see we have seen. You know, the carvings on these stones were difficult, and the steles themselves were designed to convey the majesty and the power of the king. They were elaborate, they were beautiful, and they held the legal requirement. And they were clearly designed to demonstrate the wisdom and justice of the king, and they naturally served a political purpose. The king had fulfilled the responsibilities of his office as required by God. There was no questioning the law. It was divinely inspired, and it was executed by a servant of the gods, namely the king, in this case, King Hammurabi. So as you read through the laws of Hammurabi, some are a bit comical, and of course some of them are out of date from our modern perspective, but it's fascinating the coherent simplicity of the thing. If there's one overriding theme, as you read through there, and as I read through there, that seems to really emerge ethically, it seems the issue of dishonesty is of primary concern. When we deal with dishonesty, this automatically gives rise to the need for proof. Thus, Hammurabi requires the existence of a contract or witness to establish that that one has even has the, the legal right, or if it's a contentious issue, you need to have seen, heard, or was present by a witness. So that idea of hearsay has existed from the beginning of time. Uh, You know, annotation number seven, for example, just just one of them states that, quote, anyone buy from the son of a slave of another man without witness or a contract, he is considered a thief and shall be put to death, end quote. So there you go. This this idea of having a witness that actually can prove the innocence or the guilt of something is absolutely important. So as a result, archaeologists have discovered many of the clay tablets in the remains uh, of the cities uh, that King Hammurabi controlled. Uh, and, and these tablets were uh, kept track of receipts and contracts with witnesses And they were used to attest to commercial transactions. So uh, I especially enjoyed, though, reading about the penalties. For example, there were, quote, when a citizen uh, who knocked out the teeth of an equal must have his own teeth knocked out. (laughs) So, you know, the many wrongdoers could probably negotiate settlements with the victim in order to avoid the actual infliction of getting their teeth knocked out. Uh, a citizen who did knock out the teeth of someone below him in rank could probably just simply pay compensation rather than lose their teeth equally, but that eye for an eye thing was, was definitely present. Uh, husbands and wives were the subject of particular attention and, and were legally required to conduct themselves in a way that honored the marriage contract and breaking that marriage contract uh, in many ways uh, held life and death consequences. So even though we may not agree with the laws of Hammurabi as we sit here in 2022 and beyond in the United States of America, many of the laws you read are familiar to us all, even if the punishments in the discovery process have changed. I don't know how carefully you notice the epilogue of Hammurabi's Code, but I think out of that entire list of the laws that we read that we can read in chapter one. I think that the epilogue stands out most to me. I was, I was so impressed by this statement and, and I want to read it for you specifically where it says, quote, the laws of justice which Hammurabi, the wise king, established. Hammurabi, the protecting king, am I, that the strong might not injure the weak in order to protect the widows and orphans I have in Babylon. Set up these, my precious words, by the command of Shamash, the great judge of heaven and earth. Let the oppressed who has a case at law come and stand before this stone and read the inscription which will explain his case to him. He will find out what is just and his heart will be glad. Quote. I mean, that's pretty impressive actually if you think about it. This is a world of violence, domination, and control by very powerful and often incredibly unjust, unscrupulous, maniacal rulers in many cases. And I'm struck by and impressed by Hammurabi's shot at creating an ethical and moral society when, in fact, It was a dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest, the strongest wins, the weakest loses world. Um, Of course, there were many, many imperfections with the Code of Hammurabi. Many injustices for certain groups of people in practice in the cities of Babylon, of the Babylonian Empire. There was inequality, there was racism, there was sexism. Uh, that would have been rampant beyond anything we could appreciate in 2022. But just the mere fact of taking an ethical step forward is impressive. And we should give King Hammurabi his due uh, in trying and shaping civilization and at least acknowledging trying to find a more equitable world. Now, I want to shift gears to the second part of your reading, the the Mosaic Collection of Laws uh, found in the Torah from the same geographical area. And it actually was created well before Hammurabi, going all the way back maybe to the 5th century BC. Uh, So the religious aspects of customary law undoubtedly come to the forefront in the Torah at a much more profound and explicit level than the code of Hammurabi, which still had many religious connotations. And, of course, the Torah becomes embedded into the Old Testament of the Bible in in many different ways. And, And so the Torah consists of the origin of the Jewish people, their call to being by God, their trials and tribulations, and their covenant with their God which involves following a way of life that was embodied in a set of moral and religious obligations and civil laws. And the focus for our reading is the moral and religious obligations and civil laws. See, the Torah had a persistent emphasis on the religious covenant between the Israelites and Yahweh. There's a debate in Judaism as to the status of the Torah, The conventional contemporary position is that the Torah was not revealed by God in the traditional sense, but was a product of the social customs of ancient Israel. So the Torah seems to constantly, unwaveringly equate ethical thought with moral action. Say that one more time for you. The Torah equates ethical thought with moral action. This is powerful and simple model to understand. Granted, to live out any moral code, it's never easy. You know, I I believe it was Apostle Paul in I think Romans where he said I, I he's almost lamenting the fact I I know what I should do, but I don't do it. I I know what I know what the law says, but yet I do what's not right. And it's and I continue to struggle ethically and living out the way I know I need to live. And goodness gracious, this was the right-hand man of of Jesus as he walked the planet Earth. So it is never easy to live out a moral code, but the Torah provided the Israelites a guidebook or a how-to manual to live life to its fullest in full honor and respect to an all-powerful God. Wisdom in the Mosaic tradition is seen as practical rather than theoretical kind of knowledge it's firmly embedded in, embedded in the ordinary texts and responsibility of life as as you can easily see when you read through those texts this is a point worth bearing in mind when reviewing the modern tradition you know ethical ideas and theories are not sufficient in themselves i mean theory is good and all right i mean we need theory But people also, and probably more importantly, need something concrete to sink their teeth into, something tangible to live by in this crazy world that we all find ourselves. So a document that basically says, do this or don't do that, provides for the early Israelites a manual on navigating all complexities of life in full alignment with God, the provider of universal truth and the source of all knowledge and wisdom. So to the Israelites and later even the Christians in the Bible, a a guidebook on making decisions in full alignment with God is an incredibly powerful tool in the toolkit to living your life to your fullest. So in the end, as we begin our journey of wisdom and this idea that in the world we need a set of rules of, of standards, we need ethics, ethics on how to arrive at a harmonious existence with fair and honest social interactions as human as humanly possible, shows from the outset that humans, we all, you and I, all of us, we have this drive, this desire, this yearning for a state of being where life is balanced Fair, compassionate, so everyone can equally reach happiness and fulfillment. This is a wonderful, it's a deep-seated desire of humanity. Those yearnings we have today are the very same yearnings that existed thousands of years ago, trying to figure this thing out called life. No, we have not arrived yet, obviously. To this Shangri-La, this Nirvana, where we got it all right, but it is so important that we keep striving in our own life to be as ethical, honest, and moral as possible. So as we wrap up our studies here in lesson number one, I hope you'll check out the additional resources if you want to read more. Read more of the Torah, read more of Hammurabi, And for sure, invest time answering the discussion questions for this model. You know, I I mentioned it earlier about writing. Uh, You know, writing is one of the most important skills you will ever have as a human being. It's a gift that we have. It's a gift to be able to take these things going on in our mind to think about them, to analyze them, to formulate ideas and respond. And I want to challenge you to put down any fears or apprehensions and write. Please write. Please respond to the questions. Take what you read and hear in this talk and synthesize that material by articulating your thoughts in writing, don't bypass the hardest part—writing out responses. See, it'll solidify in your mind the things that we've just that you've just read, that you've just heard in this talk that we've had. It it will make it concrete, and it'll have you own that thing. So please don't skip that step. Uh, I look forward to seeing your responses um, and and how you how you perceive what you just read um, with King Habarabai and ancient texts of the Torah so after you've had enough with these early creations of customary law we're going to move on in the next lesson to chapter 2 and we're going to deep dive into Chinese Hindu Jewish Proverbs to name just a few and I can't wait to look at some deep-seated wisdom that cuts across cultural religions and time but until then Happy exploration and writing. See you soon.